Welcome to the first ever episode five of our podcast, Fintech Insider. As always, we're coming to you live from the home of fintech in Level 39 in the heart of London. I'm David Breer, and I'm joined today, as always, by Simon Taylor. And we welcome back this week in the flesh, Chris Skinner. Jason can't make the show this week, unfortunately. We've decided for security reasons, we just can't all be in the same place at the same time. It's just too much fintech. Just kidding. He'll be back next week. We've a great show for you coming up today. We have Jess Williamson from Techstars, Gareth Jeffries from North Zone, and also Aidan Davies, who is ex-HSBC and also the man behind Fintech Bot. Before we get started with the show, though, I just wanted to thank everybody for their support so far. We've been downloaded now in over 46 countries, which for something that's only just getting going is absolutely excellent. We hope you're enjoying the format and week on week, we hope you're seeing improvements in the quality of the audio. One thing's for sure, having had a good look at the guests that we've got lined up for the next six months, things are going to get awesome. If you've got any comments or just want to get in touch and tell us how much you're loving the show, feel free to do that on Twitter via at Fintech Insiders, or you can also find us on at 11FS team. Alternatively, you can get in touch with us via email on fintechinsider at 11fs.co.uk. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. Okay, well, there's huge amounts of things happening in the news today. If we probably get started and start running through, then Simon, this is quite an interesting one. We've seen the Bitcoin drops 20% on news of another exchange hack. What's going on here? Well, aside from me losing a lot of money, no, I don't have a lot of Bitcoins, but I did buy Bitcoin a couple of days ago. And then it seems like one of the largest exchanges, Bitfinex, has been hacked. There's details still coming out on this one, but it seems like uh, the price of Bitcoin was bumping along nice and stable. Uh, everybody was starting to think, ah, this Bitcoin volatility thing's kind of gone away. Wherever the Mount Gox, you know, Bitcoin has matured, nothing to worry about. It's stable as a rock. Oh, wait, something got hacked. Uh, And then that seems to have happened. So feel free to mock me mercilessly for my timing. But uh, I think really there's a lot to be said about the price of Bitcoin moves based on events still, like the stability of it as a currency. Um, But it was just sort of getting there. And it also says that to me, Bitcoin exchanges are still very much needing to do the basics right. Uh, Really, this was kind of a security flaw. And there is no standards for getting your security right. There's the beginnings of regulations in the US and in the EU now, getting people to do KYC and AML. But there's very little happening in terms of them getting their security right. So I think we may see more of this. really interesting one was a guy named uh, Ryan Selkis from the uh, Digital Currency Group. He was saying this one is possibly more devastating than Mt. Gox. Because with Mt. Gox, everybody knew it was built on sand. With this one, everyone thought, you know, Bitfinex, they're pretty big, they're pretty stable, nothing's going to go wrong. But, you know, like 20% drop, a very large amount has been stolen. I think it was in the region of $60 million worth of Bitcoin. That is huge. And that's, you know, for all of banks' systems being out here, there, and everywhere, at least you, your money's usually pretty safe. And I think that's what Bitcoin's got to prove before it scales. So do you think we'll ever actually have a confidence in the Bitcoin as a currency based on all these disasters? That's an interesting question. Based on all these disasters, probably not. But will the disasters go away, I think, is the real question. And they could, but then will the community get behind it? Because the whole point of the Bitcoin community is we don't want standards, we don't want regulation, we don't, you know, it's got to be decentralized. It's got to, and so there's this real internal debate going on at the moment. Do we want to mature the ecosystem? And that means doing things that makes us look a bit like banks? Or do we not want to stay the Wild West and then still have these disasters now and then? Uh, and there is a battle for souls between the 
the two, and there are good arguments on both sides. So will we get there? Yeah, I think over a long enough time horizon, Bitcoin does start to become stable. It becomes a currency for everybody else outside of them. It's a really good bank for Bitcoins. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And and you you know you look at Circle Internet Financial, you look at lots of companies out there. You know, there's the Coinbase's and there's several others who you know reached a certain degree of scale. Who you know this stuff doesn't seem to happen with them. They're a little bit they're funded by the types of VC you would see funding you know uh, the major tech companies. So you know they've got strong entrepreneurs with good track records as the CEO and at the helm. These types of companies will probably build confidence over a long enough time horizon. But events like this really don't help. You know it's going to be another three four years and i honestly think this has set back bitcoin by about two years in the eyes of the press the media the public and especially in the eyes of the banking regulators which is really concerning hmm. well we're going to get uh, john matonis on in a couple of weeks time to uh, you know give his views on it and i know he's very very pro isn't he in terms of mm. doing it but you know does anybody in the room do any of you guys kind of own uh, bitcoin in terms of doing it i'm seeing lots of shake shaking of heads uh, I've, I've got some i lost quite a lot on mount gox in fact <laughs> um, I've been doxified, as some people say. And I just think it's an illustration of the libertarian dream is falling apart and without standards and some form of safe deposit box for the currency. And eventually we get Bitcoin 4.0 where it becomes stable. Well, but does that at that point, do we have to have a government or a bank or somebody along those lines actually actively regulating it and making it work? Well, or is it? Are. I mean, you've got the bit license in New York, you've got quite a bit of Bitcoin regulatory activity coming through from bank here, mm-hmm. and eventually it becomes a hybrid where it is decentralised, but it has some form of centralised structure that coordinates the safety of that system. Yeah, there'll be some rules and there'll be some standards, but the most important thing is an element of maturity. Uh, so there will be some regulations that come along, but actually the 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 banks, whilst they spend a lot of time on regulation, they also spend a lot of time on security. And that's the side that's often missed, is security is different to regulation. Uh, regulation is you must do these things. Security is we want to do these things to keep you secure. Um, and that second thing is is a maturity curve that's coming. Can I just check, do we know much about where the attack has come from? I'm so used to blaming currency fluctuations on Brexit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure what, you know, who's kind of behind this one. Uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I'm frantically going to Google it. Uh, <laughs> but isn't it ridiculous? Like, the whole point of blockchain is you know where stuff is going from and coming to because mm-hmm. it's like a centralized ledger. And yet, it completely gets undermined by the fact that someone can come in and take stuff and you don't know where it is. They have come from and where they're going. And then the headlines are always like this about Bitcoin and also about Ethereum now, thanks to the DAO attack. You kind of say there's not going to be a great deal of confidence in alternative currencies and cryptocurrencies until the maturity cycle starts to kick in. So the really interesting thing about Bitcoin is you can trace every transaction ever. Uh, so the Mt. Gox uh, hackers have been found. Right. Uh, so the the really interesting thing about choosing to hack Bitcoin is you're leaving this permanent trail of breadcrumbs. And even if you hide your tracks super, super well, the fact that you hid your tracks is also recorded. So there are companies out there like uh, Chainalysis and others who've, who've gotten really good. Uh, and another one's called Scorechain and uh, there's uh, Elliptic based here in London that are really, really good at just kind of figuring out where the funds have gone. And at some point, if you want to spend those Bitcoin, there's some way you can spend it in the Bitcoin ecosystem, but eventually there's an on-off ramp to the banking system. So you follow the money all the way through Bitcoin, and then you figure out where it got into the banking system and where it touched a human, and you go get them. So that's that's started to happen a lot, but we'll see if there's any nuances here. i got to say I'm, I'm not close enough to the to the detail to be able to say what's happened. 
Well, I, based on the uh, the article that's on CoinDesk, there isn't actually a kind of a resolution to this one yet in terms of they haven't found them. But um, you know, given to your point, the, the, all the evidence will be there to, to make it happen. So it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, committing a crime that eventually you're going to be found out. It's um, a strange, strange place to steal money from, isn't it? One small point before we move on. The interesting thing about this one was they'd adopted a standard called multisig. So basically for every transaction that you did, somebody else at a third party had to sign all of these transactions. And this was designed as being the way we were going to stop these types of attack from happening in Bitcoin. And because somebody found an attack, even with multisig, this is a real sort of uh, soul-searching moment for Bitcoin. But yeah, interesting one to follow. Just, just going back to um, cryptocurrency being built on kind of openness and transparency, should some of these organisations be transparent about what they're, what they're built on, what are these things made of, as in what security measures are in place? Uh, I, I also think it's about banks as well because mm-hmm. they're not immune to cyber theft. But should some of these organisations, is there a way of, uh, you know, we talked about normal money-holding companies being re- regulated and we know that they are certified to do this but there's no there's no certification and there's no voluntary standard. So the thing that struck me is like a kite mark, like an in, a, a voluntary kite mark that says we've got to this level. But again, that was the whole thing behind the multi-sig, right? So if we had many people signing a transaction, so that's why this has really rocked the um, the whole Bitcoin community to its core. People adopted this standard. They thought it was more secure and it's still been hacked. So where do we have to go from here? And every Bitcoin conference I've been to, they talked about multi-sig as the, the, the magic beans, so to speak. Yeah, it was the, the magic being broken. Does it, does it not feel like with this, though, and, and uh, I know we keep trying to slightly move on on this one because we, we have the potential of talking about this for the next hour, <laughs> but uh, does it not feel like with this and everything that's happened with the DAO that, you know, and eventually this is being all sort of made up as it goes along? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, not, not only is it being made up as it goes along, but we're sort of making it up with, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. I think. called an experiment. That's a really expensive experiment. Though. You know, my, my view on experiences are like fail fast and with a very small amount but of money. Many times I've heard people talk, talk about Bitcoin conferences and also about Ethereum as an experiment. And I think you have to bear that in mind. This is not tried, trusted, safe. It's still developing and it goes back to the maturity side. It, there is something where people who've been in the banking industry for a number of years look at these things or, or lawyers, they look at these things and go, it's all going to go wrong. And then there's a whole bunch of, but it, it takes somebody a little bit naive sometimes and it takes somebody willing to speculate to make change in the first place. And I think that's very hard to do in financial services because there are consequences. Dealing with somebody's money is very different to dealing with somebody's photo of their dog or their cat. And I think the security you need, we're learning that the hard way. And there's a whole generation of people learning economics the hard way, learning security the hard way. But actually, the net result of this, all of this experimentation will be amazing things to come in a few years. But it's in like its gaudy teenage phase where, you know, it's kind of started dressing in black and it's it's all a bit silly and it's running to its room all the time and there's all kinds of things going wrong and there's another drama every other day but actually it's also learning a lot as it's doing it I, I love the idea that Bitcoin has gone goth and it's, <laughs> it's like a, a phase it's going through yeah. I, I like that so mo- moving on to the next thing then so we, we've seen uh, so TransferWise has got direct access to faster payments which seems kind of a quite an interesting one in terms of you know to the point of adolescence and maturity this seems like quite an interesting maturity for a fintech player actually sort of tying back in terms of the 
the sort of standard existing rails. What do you guys think about this? So just to open on this one, I think what's interesting about faster payments is this is the way you probably log on to your online banking and you pay somebody uh, yourself, but you always do it by logging on to your online banking. It's only banks that have access to this way of paying each other in the UK. And it's you know it's a far cheaper way to move money uh, in the UK and it's, it's almost immediate than just about everything else. Like I don't use my debit card to pay somebody else. I don't use any other form of payment. I use faster payments. But I only do it through my bank. This is a watershed moment insofar as transfer-wise, a money transfer business has genuine access to it. So they potentially are getting reduced costs in accessing this payments infrastructure. So they might be able to pass that on or that might impact their business in some way. That's interesting. But then also there's a lot of stuff a bank does that maybe people don't realize they do when you're making a faster payment. They're checking certain things. They're checking fraud lists. They've got all kinds of limits set up. Like Maintaining access to that infrastructure is actually quite hard and quite costly. So it remains to be seen whether this will actually reduce the costs for TransferWise or will it increase their costs for TransferWise. It's it's interesting as a watershed moment, though. I don't know what the room thinks on this one. Naivety, but why do they actually need it? And I thought TransferWise is doing foreign exchange. Faster payments is domestic. Yeah, indeed. I'm thinking it's because they want to be able to pull money directly out of your bank account and have that land in somebody else's uh, the other or side of the world. Because they're just doing that matching of pounds to pounds in exchange for euros to euros, and you don't actually do any FX transaction at all. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So was it the domestic side of things that was the bottleneck in the first place? I genuinely don't know. Um, I, I think that their whole thing was predicated on international transfers, wasn't it, in terms of where they were going, to, yeah. to your point, Chris. But... Um, you know the the quotes that are sort of coming out of Christo on this one in terms of where it is 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 kind of more of a, a local presence in terms of where it's going and actually those guys seeing as it's almost like a they're getting access to all of the tools that the the sort of big boys are getting in terms of doing it so they're sort of seeing this as much as a almost a, a leveling of the playing field as as anything really in terms of what they can do. That's with. certainly their marketing though. If you look at all their marketing, it's like um, banks are a scam, avoid the hidden fees and all this sort of stuff. That that would be their natural narrative to, to continue that. Well, we've got access to this thing, aren't we? The champions of the user. They're like Tron or something. Um, I think, I was going to say that for me, that I think the story is potentially Raphael's bank because they're the one, they've, they've partnered with a bank which gives them an interesting partnership. And the comments from Raphael's bank are them looking to become a platform. They're becoming a platform to help other companies. Who else is going to partner with Raphael's bank? That's, that's an interesting angle as well. Is it just being transfer-wise, it's good that they've got access to the pipes. Someone who's got a bit of different thinking, what, what will they do with the pipes? They do FX today. They do the transfer-wise and lets them... There might be other products they've got up their sleeve, which would be interesting. And just and again, it reminds me of um, Dwaller partnered with Van City in the US, and that gave them access to things like ACH. And then they went and rewrote part of the process that allowed people to move money. So it's fintech for me. It'd be interesting if fintech kind of seen as this front end customer experience type stuff, but what they really want is better access to the back end systems to do things that they can't do today because. Either there is a middleman involved, or they just don't have access to the pipes or near enough to the core. So, and I think it was going to be very really important for TransferWise is explaining how having that back end means that they can make it much better at the front end. I.e., I mean, their big thing now is going to be make this even more mainstream, which is why they're doing above the line stuff at Gatwick Airport and all that sort of thing. I mean, you know, the more that they can push this to the mainstream and say, hey, listen, don't you worry about this great back end thing that we've got. This means that this is what it means to you as a consumer. 
it's X percent quick, quicker, it's X percent cheaper, whatever it is. And that's when I think they'll get a lot of additional value out of it, above and beyond whatever margin implications it has. Mm-hmm. But I think while the news right now is all about transferwise, I think the bigger story is who else is going to be granted access to faster payments and what does this mean when we're seeing more blending of new technology, old technology, yeah. startups getting access to more rails. Well, it, it does sort of feel like this kind of changes the setup, doesn't it? You've got all the traditional players usually sort of having that as their, their sort of playground, don't you? And now, you know, who's, who's next kind of coming through in terms of sort of doing it? I mean, on that backdrop, you've got to also bear in mind, you've got the payments regulator now and the government saying that they want more competition in financial services, more access for small businesses and companies generally directly into the payment system. So the banks no longer own that turf. I mean, that turf is being opened up. Want to keep watching that in terms of doing it. Interesting next story. So we've got fintech funding. So we've got 186 companies raised 1.6 billion globally in June. You know, this is a staggering figure actually sort of coming through in terms of what we're seeing. And, you know, we, we sort of double, triple check this one in terms of whether this was like a, you know, literally a all year figure or, or actually something that actually happened all in June. And it sort of stands up, you know, that all of these deals actually add up to $1.6 billion. This is, Brexit, is that is that okay? <laughs> shot it right up there. <laughs> They've like doubled down after like all of the bad news type thing. Yeah, it's uh, chuck, chuck your money into it. I do, I do notice it is quoted in dollars. So maybe that, you know, most of it would be coming from America <laughs> potentially in terms of doing it. But, um, but yeah, this is coming from China, China. Yeah. yeah. Well, of the you know of the ones that we're actually sort of seeing, so you know the 186 companies that made up 1.6 billion, the you know the majority of them still are coming from uh, from the US based on kind of what we were seeing. You know, actually, you know, we're seeing a lot of New York, a lot of Virginia, a lot of Massachusetts, Nebraska. Like, very few of them seem to be kind of actually coming out of anywhere else other than that. So. You know, for all of the kind of um, you know, and this is slightly going against obviously my uh, feelings as a as a Brit and my my pomp for kind of uh, you know London fintech type thing, but most of the stuff in terms of the investment still seems to be coming out of the US. Well, it shows there's lies, done lies, and statistics, and that you've got the Finnovate figures that you're quoting, which is you know saying uh, 1.6 billion, and yet according to the Singapore-based fund Life Shredder, the whole of the first half of the year, the US only got 1.86 billion invested in fintech, out 10.6 billion going to China. And so, you know, it just depends whose numbers you're looking at. And define fintech as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gareth, do you have a view on this as with a VC hat on or just kind of your view watching the market? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the numbers surprised me as much as it surprised a lot of you guys. It, it definitely sounds a lot, and especially when you compare it to what Finnovate said were the numbers from the year before and the year before that. And it probably felt like FinTech was at its most bubblicious about this time last year. So <laughs> bubblicious. That's yeah, that's, that's some excellent word usage there, <laughs> bubblicious. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm led to slightly question it the same way that, that you guys are. I mean, I think if it is that high, it's going to be led by... To be honest, people wanting to close rounds before summer, there's probably going to be a bit of a spike there. Brexit, I don't doubt, probably did have a bit of an impact in the price. People probably were a bit worried about it on the horizon and thought, actually, we better store some fat for the winter in case this is going to uh, cause a bit of problems. Yeah, our good friend Anna Arrera from eFinancial News wrote up an article about what's happened since the Brexit vote and said that UK tech firms, not fintech tech firms, got $200 million of VC capital since the Leave vote, which actually sounds okay until you compare it to $330 million the year before. Mm-hmm. So there is some sort of stumbling along the way, but having said that, you know, tech in the UK, fintech is still growing. I always think looking at quarter this quarter versus last year's quarter is difficult. You need to zoom out to the trend line a little bit, and the trend line is going to be the thing I'm, I'm most keen to watch. 
the, the sort of good news, I guess, about it, if you do believe it is that kind of high, is uh, maybe it signals a kind of coming of age of financial technology, right? Because there's going to be a lot of companies who raise, a lot of these companies who are raising money now probably raised seed rounds a year ago, two years ago, something like that, and spent some time building out the proof of concept, getting some early traction, maybe starting to get on the cusp of being quite mainstream, and then, okay, they're now raising much bigger numbers uh, in order to, to really capitalize on that. Totally agree. That was the first thing I thought when I saw these numbers was, okay, yes, 1.6 is surprising, but I'm not surprised overall to see it go up and up and up, because as the companies mature, just like you said, they're going to need more funding. And to Simon's point on what is fintech, I think something we might have categorized two years ago as, oh, that's restaurant technology, that's transportation technology. Now we're like, oh, it's fintech, it involves payments, it involves paying for things. So categorization. So. There's, a, there's a broadening of definition that's helpful there, isn't there? <laughs> Jess, you're, you're spot on, I think. Is there any reason why we Obviously, it's an easy number to, to see. A company's publicly raised some money. We use it as this measure of growth in the area, but is it that interesting? I don't, also, the, t- the term raise, was it raise their burden, their blood pressure? What, it's, 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 it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a strange... It's a look weird these, measurement. These numbers that, it's amazing, but... How many customers do these people have? What's their mm-hmm. revenue? What profit are they making? Yeah. Are they really disrupting the banks? People it's get excited. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Not money out. Yeah, yeah. It's just an easy measure to. So, somebody has clearly th- thought that the, each of these 186 companies is is worth investment. I think that's the the interesting thing, and it's I guess you know to to you know discussions we've had before, Simon. You know how sound some of that investment might be in terms of the the current climate is also you know an interesting one to have type thing, but. You know, it's a staggering num- you know, amount of money, isn't just it, really? Just a conversation over lunch, which is um, you know, seeking the unicorns. And that's basically what all the investment's about, seeking the unicorns. And it's not seeking the unicorn, it's more seeking the surviving unicorns. There's going to be a lot of dead ones, yeah. in that way. And if you say there's a, you know, 100 unicorns... That's really sad. Like, the yeah, field of dead unicorns. Like uni from uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Like my childhood dying there, it's terrible. So. Well, you know... This goes with my little pony. <laughs> and basically, you end up with maybe four that survive and become the gaffers to Google, Apple, Facebook, of fintech. But then that means there's 96 that have died. So there will be a lot of money lost here somewhere. On that morose note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry to be the uh, sort of deliverer of that bad news for everybody out there. But uh, moving on to the next thing then. So this is uh, this is a fun one and, and sitting next to Chris as I, uh, as I sort of say this one. So this is from the finances. So this is Chris's your your blog a seven-year-old idea comes of age with bank as a service so i love the fact that you quote a bunch of things at the front of this one of which was uh, an article yeah. i wrote for uh, the uh, financial brand so uh, the, with the one, uh, one you stole off, jim, jim <laughs> yeah like the abuse i got as i wrote that article yeah it was 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 fun but so that you know i think like genuinely though like the difference between bank as a service and bank as a platform you know, I know there's a huge amount that is out there now about bank as a service, and I've read your article, and I went back and read your other articles as well to uh, make sure I was well informed for this uh, this one. <laughs> but it's uh, an interesting topic, and it, it seems to be really sort of gathering pace. You know, I know we're going and spending some time with uh, people like Solaris Bank over in Berlin mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks' time, aren't we? And uh, you know, how would we categorize those guys? You know, would we put those guys as a 
platform or would we put them as a service? And, I, mm-hmm. you know, you had a really good example as in, you know, the difference between what AWS is, is trying to do and Salesforce. Uh, and Salesforce. You know, Salesforce is very much in the, the kind of SaaS side of things, whereas, you know, AWS is very much kind of a, a pass play. Yeah. You know, how do you sort of see this evolving? Like Californication, we're going to platformication, and it's very much around how you bring these things together in an open source structure. And I think that's really what the core is that we're open sourcing financial services, and you know, platform services nuances of that that open sourcing. It's really to do with a combination of all the technologies that are coming into a mature state cycle. I mean, cloud's been around for almost a decade now, mobile's been around for three decades. We've got apps, analytics, we've got artificial intelligence, we've APIs. You know, the, the services and capabilities are growing daily. And what it really means is that now the companies are taking all those services and opening the previously proprietary and closed structures of banking and finance and saying we can open this into plug and play systems and services, whether it's software as a service, platform as a service, or money as a service, you know, whatever it is, we can open this up and make it just um, widgets in, on the internet. I think it becomes really interesting when we start to think about all the different flavors of startups that are coming out and that might offer these widgets. Right. So the, the Solaris idea that, uh, you know, you just need the, uh, the basics of a bank and you can go build an entire fintech startup on the basics of a bank versus like some others who are more full service. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's a few others out there that are, that kind of be more integrated. So there'd be, um, the likes of Mondo, for example, who are a bank themselves, but then allow you to access stuff as software as, as as APIs, that'd be really interesting. As all these business models are like tried out, it's uh, it's an interesting one to watch. It's interesting if you look and compare, for example, Solaris and Stripe, and that Stripe mm. is a very narrow API capability that's gaining great volume. And according to Patrick Thompson, is all about the fact that they're building roads for the payment services of the internet rather than the, the cars that travel on those roads. Solaris is the fintech bank for fintech firms, mm-hmm. and that's how they see themselves. They're saying. Well, you might work with Stripe for that piece, but then you need these other pieces. We'll provide you with the other pieces that Stripe don't deliver. Mm. And so it gets interesting because it then says there's going to be lots of collisions and replications and, again, maybe more requirement for, not standards, but more requirement for knowing what it is that um, it says it does on the tin. Does it really do what it says on the tin? Well, it's, it's getting that efficiency, isn't it? When you've got um, you know 15 suppliers that might do a similar thing, that it becomes a... A price or a, um, a, a kind of a, a quality conversation in terms of sort of doing it, doesn't it? We we had the the guys from Bud a few weeks ago, and you know I'd, I'd categorise those guys as uh, as a bank as a platform. You know they they literally aggregate through their in individual technology all the things that they do and deliver that to a uh, consistent and unique experience to to sort of customers. And you know given the sort of reasonable sort of death by a thousand cuts that banks are kind of going through with all of the you know the fintech players that are coming through then you know whether it's somebody like bud that are doing it and being pretty much agnostic in terms of the people that are coming on or whether it's somebody like mondo who have a you know a, a solid current account relationship and then actually aggregate other services i, I can definitely see this gathering huge amounts of pace and, and not just within the banking sphere either but actually you know, this is kind of a, a, a the style of platform that really, really appeals. You know, given conversations we've been having to kind of outside of banking. You know, actually mm. at the point where you've got a, a very large community, then being able to open up really interesting services to those large communities and 
and kind of monetize that in a way that actually wouldn't be possible without this type of platform. It's also interesting because a lot of the banks I'm talking to are saying that their mandate now is to roll out API services. And so I was with a bank two weeks ago and they said this year's target is to have four APIs delivered next year, 40, the year after, 400, you know, ramping and ramping ramping up. And again, the banks that try and stay closed and proprietary are going to really be suckers because they're going to be sitting there just dancing to their own party whilst that one's left. It's interesting, though, that there are some banks that have had APIs, you know, Credit Agricole, BBVA, they've had them for five, six years, and it's, it's almost like not do you have an API, it's how good is your API yeah. and do developers love your API. It's not just about the number of APIs. Really, <laughs> crazy idea, Jess, I know, crazy. But I, I look at the Twilio IPO, right? I mean, there's an example of how to do APIs and build a developer community and have something that's just super usable and you know just and, and gareth you guys have been in and around startups you know that this like embracing your developer community is super important and i think that's something that banks might be missing in this whole story completely agree i, I think this um despite uh, the accusation that i stole all your ideas chris which uh, <laughs> you know i apologize for in, in, in advance of the next phase of that that comes out later it's, on it's the wonder of youth it is it is yeah it i is. also think people underestimate when they release apis you know, how clunky they might be. Are they usable? Can developers actually use it in a real environment, not just in some test bed? I think people overestimate how valuable their APIs are going to be to a developer community and don't always have the support in place. It's 90% support. Yeah, it it kind of feels like a lack of awareness from that perspective. And actually, I think, you know, the the ties into sort of what we're going to start seeing with regards to things like PSD2, you know, like actually, you know, the, the sort of dropping a reasonably sort of half-assed API and standing back like it's the most amazing thing in the world type thing. Well, it's, it's like um, having just the most amazing uh, cakes in the world, but they're actually stored in a sewer. Like, yeah, I'm not going to go to the sewer for this really great cake, but if I go to a really nice shop and there's a really nice cake in that really nice shop, well, I'm going to walk in there. Even if the cakes are, like, not that bad, I'm going to go in because the shop looks nice and maybe I buy a cake. If it's a shiitake cake, it could be good. Yeah, oh, the puns are good. Uh, I think it's worth moving on at that point. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, so, yeah, no, I I think that's a, a you know an interesting one, and I think we're we're definitely going to see more and more organisations, both big banks and um, you know fun, interesting players coming to the market that will um, start um, you know definitely taking advantage of that. Venmo, you know Venmo, the next story we're, we're seeing that those guys are soon to be larger than any bank peer to peer service. That's kind of an amazing view of that. What does everybody think on this one? I love Venmo, but then Venmo isn't something new; it's PayPal. So PayPal is the power behind Venmo, and Venmo has been growing like turbocharged um, soups ever since PayPal's taken them over uh, in 2013 when they got brain, brain treats. So they did $2.5 billion processing of payments in Q4 2015, and then that rose to $3.2 billion in Q1 this year, $4 billion in Q2, and it's just rocketing upwards and upwards all the time. You know, it's doubling year on year, more than doubling year on year. And I think the reason is that it's just able to do very small transactions. Ron Shevlin, the snarketeer, estimates it's averaging $2 per transaction on Venmo, which um, means that they're processing 9 billion transactions in the last quarter, you know what I mean? Wow. They're, they're really rocketing. Yeah. Why, why has it been so successful in the States, though? And why, I, I guess, why have we not seen... You know, with everything that was sort of the peer-to-peer players that have come up in the UK and kind of across Europe, why are we not seeing the same sort of traction in Europe? We will, probably. I mean, bearing in mind, PayPal's in Europe. I think in the States, though, it's way more broken. I mean, if you want to pay someone back $50, you're probably going to write a check. 
or go way out of your way to get cash from an ATM. But like paper and, and UK, pen and signatures. <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. We still have checkbooks, I swear. <laughs> These gold doubloons. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas here, when you just get someone's account number and sort code, you know, hopefully you know their name, it's not quite as painful to pay people back. So I don't think it's quite as urgent. It'd be interesting to see how uh, Venmo stacks up against Facebook and others when Facebook launches their payment services, though. Because bearing in mind, mm. you know, in the social space, if Twitter and Facebook offer me easy payments, would I need Venmo? I think Venmo, as well, is just so ingrained within everyone in the US. Like, it's kind of like a verb now, like a, the equivalent of an Uber here. It's like, oh, just Venmo me the money. And being from the States, like my friends that don't even use mobile banking or online banking are just like, Venmo is probably one of the most. Yeah, MJ, I totally agree. I think it's it's that. Um, I think it's what Jess said around the that it's more broken there, and two, it's reached a level of social acceptance. And I think that's been the difficult for peer to peer services here. It's like Pingit, for example, was seen as very much, oh, I'm a Barclays customer, I'll use Pingit between all of the Barclays customers, and then nobody else uses it except you know one or two crazy people like me who who actually aren't Barclays customers. But then there's I, I like to be a salmon. But then there's, <laughs> and then you know there's efforts like PM, which I think is somewhat ill fated. You know, but well-intentioned where the regulator goes oh well we want to kind of do something awesome and we want these peer-to-peer payments but like yeah it it doesn't quite suck enough to warrant a really great experience and i think the other thing is therefore there's no entrepreneur that can come in and disrupt quite as easily so we do kind of a good enough job of gradually opening the payment system up and creating competition in the marketplace and upgrading the payment system so the banks are kind of okay but nobody's creating that amazing experience and over time i think the creation of that amazing experience becomes the gap and also even if the experience is really great if there's still a, a reasonably significant barrier to actually doing it in the first place i mean like pay him you gotta sign up register do whatever even if it's as simple as put your name and email address in people are like oh i can't be bothered i'll just yeah. i'll just get you a drink next time well i'll, I'll just whatever <laughs> yeah. you know I'll, I'll just i'll i've got your sort code on my bank i'll do it next it, time it's so much more normal buying rounds here isn't it yeah. <laughs> we're just alcoholics it's our currency. If, yeah. if we could just all, all do it on buying rounds of beer that would be quite <laughs> handy wouldn't it it'd be very british i think mm. but uh, maybe vino mo vino mo nice Aiden, good <laughs> shout good idea. And at that point, moving on. <laughs> so we, we've got um, the, the next one. We've got so German digital bank Fido acquired by French banking giants. This is quite a, you know, Fido have been in, in the news a lot lately in terms of the, the sort of changes, everything that happened with O2 and and now, uh, you know, the, the acquisition. This is this is huge, really, isn't it, for for kind of Fido and sort of supercharging what they're doing. Really. Does anyone know the terms of the purchase cost? No, it's 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 nothing being made public. It's a bit sad. No, no fintech insider knowledge. <laughs> well, we couldn't say if we did. That's because we're insiders. I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Yeah. But Fedor, I mean, it's sad, really, because it was like the beacon of shaking up everything and mm. doing a, a traditional financial services model with a banking license in a completely different way. Yeah. And now they've been swallowed up by a bank. And so, well, that's interesting, because obviously they, they did have a big... They talked about licenses as a service or licenses as a platform, which was really interesting. But yeah. I didn't ever see that get any great deal of traction. Obviously, there was a deal two deal. But yeah, they had some interesting ideas. But I'm also interested, interested more in, in why did BBC buy them in terms of you might have expected maybe a city or someone to have bought them, but mm-hmm. why that bank? 
Yeah, it's odd. I, I get the sense that you know they were doing a really good job of gaining tractions, gradually building a business, but not being massively profitable. And I guess it got to the point where if somebody comes along with a reasonable sized offer, I, I my my heart wanted them to keep going and kind of being the independents because if you look at most of the core banking systems out there, at some point a bank built them and sold them to a vendor and spun them out, and now they're selling off somebody's thirty year old core system that a bank themselves built. Well, this was history repeating itself. Like the really interesting thing about Fido was it was an entirely new built from the ground up bank back end whereas the overwhelming majority of them even new banks there's other new challenger banks in the UK that have bought one of these 30 year old platforms and then they're trying to build a bank on 30 year old software this Fido was truly different and when Simple got acquired I think Simple had just kind of withered on the vine since then and you know will that happen to Fido here yeah you're right Chris is, yeah, is, is, is it a technology buy are they buying it to replace some of their core components is it a brand buy is it a, like you say, you wouldn't have thought of that bank. They don't really register on the fintech radar, but that a they've now become a bit more fintech. Well, well so, so but, but BPCE have got thirty-five million customers. That is a huge organisation in terms of doing it. That mm. you know, I do wonder to to your point, Aidan, have they basically just bought this as a migration strategy in terms of their you know their technology play rather than sort of investing yeah, in a? And that would be really interesting because, like you say. Not sure what was bought from Simple technology-wise. Obviously, NeoBank, yeah. you know, they didn't have the same level of tech, similar kind of stack as Fido. But yeah, they, yeah. What what have they bought, and how much will that become integrated? Staff as well. It's like you you taking a. Where's Mateus and all those guys going to fit into the organisation? What, what, what I know we're going to see Mateus do any more amazing like presentations because if you've not seen this guy present, you need to. He's the funniest Bavarian I know. I'm no one. I think the key thing about um, Fedor as well is it's two businesses. So there's the bank business, which is UK and Germany and Russia. Uh, and then there's the tech business. Uh, which has actually been selling white label services worldwide, and they've been developing partnerships in the US and Asia. And so, you know, the new company, according to the uh, press release, is going to be Fedor Holding Group, which has those two businesses run by Krona, but within Group BPCE. And I'm guessing that the French bank really wants to get the insights about digital transformation that they can gain from Fedor and internalize those and roll those out to their French customers. Mm-hmm. And with those, uh, you know, that significant a base, then. You know, if they can make all that happen, then you know that's a pretty amazing team to be sort of running your transformation, with, yeah. isn't it? So yeah. exciting! I have to wait and see. Is it also probably cheaper than bringing in McKinsey? True. Is yeah, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> is it also a bit of the death knell of this kind of digital, pure digital bank dream? I don't I mean, know. Mondo is still raising the flag. I think, I think Mondo is still. Going for it, uh, we're, we're going to keep all kind of eyes on yeah. them, like hawks. We're, we're going to keep keep mentioning this because Jason's not here, and it doesn't feel like propaganda type thing. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're good on this one, yeah. But it just feels like you know, simple got bored and like kind of withered on the vine. And there's it's, it's got into BBVN and, and things are happening there. And the scale of the got bored. I mean, never really launched any sort of scale. Fido, like say, was struggling to gain real customer numbers. Things like Mover and there's. We've not seen a real breakout star from that 
sector. Of and I think what's interesting about the banking industry generally is that acquiring customers is hard and slow. And unless you can make it is, it's well, even people that talk about their cost of acquisition being $12, actually profiting from that customer then depends on having, I think, your own platform. It's your profit once you've acquired them. And if you're using a 30 year old platform, how does that, how does that stack up? It, it really starts to get difficult. So, and then what level of scale do you need for that business to make sense? I think it's, it's an interesting, interesting one to watch. But yeah, we've not seen the, I, I, my thesis is that it's very hard to be the Facebook or the Apple or the, uh, the Google of fintech just because acquiring customers is regional. It's slow getting wet. And there's this real sticky effect about my wage goes into this account and then all the money gets paid out of that account. And now I'm going to move where my wage goes. Like the, that does kind of hold you really hard and people underestimate that. Agree. Lots of uh, lots of interest in this one, and I think um, you know, seeing how Fedor sort of reacts to being acquired, I think as much as what is done with Fedor, the bits that they have is is probably the interesting part from our perspective, isn't it? Yep. Um, last up at, on this one, we've got why Australia's biggest banks are going after Apple, and this seems like quite a, quite an interesting one. We've got the three biggest banks in, in Australia basically sort of saying no. So they're sort of collectively put forward a joint application with antitrust regulators, basically seeking approval to collectively negotiate with Apple, which is kind of very different to everything that we've seen globally kind of happen with these guys. Instead so, of all the banks fawning over Apple, throwing marketing dollars, doing their marketing for mm-hmm. them, and just wanting the halo effect of being yeah. to the Australian banks there. Well, there, Wait a minute. Yeah, it's, it seems, you know, the fact that they've actually managed to get them all together to do this is amazing in itself, but they're actually even asking for the ability to install their own electronic payments applications on iPhones. So this is not just, hey, you know, we don't want you coming and taking half of our money type thing, Mm -hmm. but also we want the ability to actually do our own thing, which is pretty ballsy, really moved from the Australian bank. So how do we see this one playing out? Do they even have the ability to offer that service themselves? Some will, some won't, but I think that feels to me like a bargaining chip. Like, if you're going to have this platform strength, we want to we want to at least pretend we want that platform strength so that we can negotiate. Because in Europe and the US, there was no negotiation. Apple was the Borg, and if you wanted this, you were accepting it. And in the US and Europe, in Europe, we had the interchange cap. In the US, you had Dodd-Frank. So somebody came along and said, right, I'm going to slash the amount of money you make from these transactions to, like, 20% of what you were making last year. So, And of that 20%, then Apple comes along and says, I want half of that. So, like, of what you've got left, you're going to have a divorce with your money. Um, I, like, it's very difficult in the negotiation to go, oh, he- heck yeah, like, sign me up. And I think the Australian banks have seen this coming and they've seen the squeals of pain from, from other banks in terms of their profit margins in that in that division and just gone, we don't want the same of that. We've got to think of a way to have a stronger negotiating position here. If we buddy up and we, we ask for these things, you know, it, this feels like the sacrificial lamb. We want our, our app. They're wasting their time and money. Yeah, and the reason is that it's only three of the Australian banks that are fighting. One isn't, and it's ANZ. They'll they'll win. And if ANZ does a deal with Apple Pay, yep. the other three are screwed. And this is yeah, and this is what Apple did extremely well in Europe and in the US. And it's I think it's an effective strategy. I don't disagree with you. I was just articulating what I think is their strategy. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, Apple will steamroll them without yeah. question. So so I I they get this... Amex, they get ANZ, they get a few of the other smaller banks. So gradually you say, look, we've got all these. If you're not in our wallets, then your brand disappears. And the pester power of users. I mean, yeah. you saw what happened with Barclays. Like people were standing on them on every social media channel. Like, why haven't you done it, Barclays? You suck. And and... Customers are quite vocal. 
Indeed, I, I've heard this. <laughs> and the other thing with it is that actually once then the bank adopts Apple Pay, nobody seems to use it. Like the volumes aren't coming through, yeah. but it's, it's like everybody wants it, but nobody uses yeah, the I thing. keep saying that's the reason why you would, you would use it instead of having a card. I mean, I've got a contactless card. Why would I use a contactless app instead of my contactless card? Mm. You know, and the only, the only thing that makes me think I would is if um, I'm using the Apple Watch, for example, and therefore I can just tap because the watch is easy on, on, the, on the underground, which is what you do. But otherwise, I don't, I don't, see, I don't see what the incentive is. Yeah, it's not really solving a problem that no. the far better design plastic card has. Yeah. We, we talked about Mondo, we'll bring it up too many times, but you know, the back-end services, the notifications, the value you're getting out of that transaction data can be got with today's infrastructure and some decent back-end changes. So, yeah, okay. holding your several hundred pound smartphone to... And with that in mind, do you feel like the benefit of having Apple Pay outweighs the rigmarole of switching bank to ANZ if you're an Australian with one of the big three? I mean, you know, they might just sit there and grumble about it and say, oh, it's really upsetting that we don't have Apple Pay. But is it, is it upsetting enough that I'm going to go to an ANZ branch and be like, hey, I hear you guys have Apple Pay, can you sign me up? No, that almost doesn't seem to matter, right? I mean, th- there is something about banks watch their net promoter score and really don't like it when their customers are up in arms and in the press. Like, they're really sensitive to media, and, and I guess that would enforce them to eventually adopt it in some way in the end. But actually, the amount of user switching is always tremendously low. Like, the churn rate in banking is tiny. I think it's like um, you would have to switch to find out it was kind of pointless. Do you know what I mean? It's like the Pokemon stuff. And then by the time you've done that, you're not going to switch back. So yeah. it's, well, it's, it's laughing, exactly. Yeah. It was like when I there, I played Pokemon for two weeks and I was like, this is good. And then like the third week, I was like, why am I doing this type thing? Mm-hmm. So so I think the, the regret of the switching might happen after doing it in terms of where you're going. And you know, we'll, we'll have to see. David, if that, that happened because you were playing Pokemon and then you accidentally wiped all of your Pokemon. <gasps> they, they, they wiped my Pokemon. I like that's what you said. Who's they? The man. I clearly, I've been watching same guys who hiked for Bitcoin Clearly, I think that's going to be an interesting one to say. I think I agree with you, Chris. I, I kind of feel like it's uh, uh, they're putting up a barrier that they probably can't hold, and I think sort of time will tell whether. Uh, one sort of chink in the armour there of uh, somebody sort of breaking ranks and, and doing it will probably lead to them all sort of adopting it anyway. So, uh, dare I say, it's like the boy with his finger in the dike. Indeed, absolutely. And on that note... In the Netherlands, I mean. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, don't Google that, guys, whatever you do. So on that note, <laughs> let's uh, move on and <laughs> just have a uh, listen to a note from our sponsors. Thank you very much. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thank you very much to our sponsors. And so if we move on to what we feel is is probably one of the biggest stories of the, the week, really. So we've seen Barclays rolling out voice biometrics for telephone banking, which is Quite an interesting move. Megan, tell us a little bit more about this one. Yeah, thanks. So um, Barclays announced that next month they'll start using voice recognition to authenticate customers within telephone banking. This isn't the first initiative we've seen from Barclays with regards to some cool authentication techniques. So a few years ago, they actually implemented a feature within the mobile banking app where customers could call directly within the telephone banking center and didn't have to authenticate. So the authentication was that they had already logged into the mobile banking app, speeding up the process. I'd used it before. It was really sleek, quite liked it. 
As a Barclays customer, I totally welcome the use of um, voice recognition. Previously, kind of customers have to authenticate with a debit card or a passcode. Personally, I could never remember the passcode, so it was just a massive pain. Barclays actually started using this system with its wealth customers way back in 2013 um, with quite positive results. So 93% of customers rated the technology 9 out of 10 for speed, ease of use, and security. And Barclays actually isn't the only bank to offer such a solution. So Tinkoff Bank in Russia also has voice biometrics. They have a thousand-person call center, um, and they actually reported that they were able to cut 40 to 60 seconds off the authentication process um, for its 1.2 million monthly customers. So I think that, yeah, it's quite cool. I think that voice authentication, it's a really good use case within telephone banking. Mobile banking, I think, is a complete different story. So I know that we've talked about this at length. We're seeing more and more banks um, start to implement biometrics, so voice and face recognition. So I think that in terms of being able to log in, no one really wants to sit there and say, my voice is my passport, let me in when they're on a tube. Um, but I think the customers may be more willing to use um, facial recognition as a means to log in. And I think that probably the biggest success story we've heard with facial recognition is USAA. So back in February of 2015, um, they were the first major U.S. bank to deploy sort of full-scale voice and facial recognition. In the first month, they had 100,000 customers that had opted into the biometrics. And about five months down the line, they actually had a million out of their four million customers using the solution. And what's quite cool is a lot of the older customers are using it. So they have, I think, five customers over um, 90 years of age that are actually using face recognition. Which is pretty cool. That's just adorable, isn't it? Like the, the over 90s using facial recognition. Did you see this video that um, I think it was Google put out once where they gave uh, a lady that was uh, in her mid 90s and they gave her a VR headset and she's like, I can't believe this. Is this the real world? I and mean, I love the idea of something being so usable that the over 90s can adopt it quite easily. And that facial recognition piece is actually easier to use and remember than a passcode. And also the passcodes are subject to identity theft, as are many other bits of information you give to a contact center. This is probably more secure and a better experience. It's rare you get both of those with one of these things. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, with the USA solution, they use device identification in the background. Um, so each time sort of a, a customer logs in, an encrypted token is sent from the phone to USAA. So there's sort of that two different phases of authentication. So customers have to blink once they log in. I've actually used it a couple times. It's like super slick. Um, I think that they have like a 94% success rate in terms of first logins are successful. I gotta say, I have a worse success rate putting six digits into my mobile banking app. Like I miss a digit sometimes. I probably, I'm probably like 75%. So if my face is 94%, that's pretty good. Yeah. That, that is pretty impressive. I wonder how they've, um, you know, they've sort of, plug some of the gaps with it you know I, I think I've told you guys about it before you know my old Samsung phone of, of kind of my, my wife being able to kind of log into my phone just using a, a picture of me she has on her one you know how secure is this now is it have they sort of plugged the gaps that um, obviously if these guys are starting to implement it as a way of uh, authenticating customers then it must be pretty robust now right yeah I mean it, it seems so I mean it caught on quite quickly and we haven't sort of seen it taken off and they seem to be continuing to promote it so mm-hmm. Because it, it um, I kind of find, you know, similar to things like Siri that we've sort of seen with the sort of digital assistant stuff, it's kind of, I, I try it, and if it doesn't work, I will sort of 
go out of my way to not use it for, until it's like rammed down my throat. But you know, the point where actually we're you know really sort of democratizing digital, like you say, Simon, for pretty much every group, you know, anybody who can literally have a face can use this to, to authenticate themselves. It's pretty hard to forget your face. It is. It's difficult. And, and I'm, I feel like I've almost been implementing this myself for many years. I'm absolutely terrible with names, but really good with faces. Now technology's the same. It is, yeah. I'm glad I was ahead of that curve. It's nice. I think that's interesting, your point, Simon, about potentially age barrier, but I'd be interested to know the sign-up. It, it, what it does get rid of is the yet another password problem. It, it, it does feel... While you say it might be an awkward interaction on the tube, people at home might be more comfortable with it. it the facial recognition one, and also the voice recognition one, which we kind of touched on the kind of new interaction methods that Alexa and Google's uh, assistant potentially bring. Yeah, it's a fascinating little shift. And um, if you're using voice biometrics to call a contact center specifically as well, like that's the use case I think that Barclays is talking about here. Well, am I going to call the that on the tube, no not really, I'm not going to really do it on the train, I'm probably going to do it when I'm at home anyway and I need to speak to a person so uh, I'm more likely to say something like that because it's better than having to navigate like this crazy IVR where I've got to put numbers in and then it gets it wrong and all that sort of stuff, if they know it's me and they can greet me by name, that's that's nice Yeah exactly and I think I mean especially I'm sort of really guilty of this just constantly losing my debit and credit card and it's kind of annoying when it's you have to enter the card and you're like I don't have the card and then it keeps clicking you through if you you can just sort of do this without the card. It just speeds up the process. I think that the, the call centre uh, process as well is important. I know at First Direct they trialled voice biometrics several years ago, but with uh, First Direct there's no IVR system, so there's no pause there. It's straight into a hello, and they, they couldn't get the process slick enough. Mm. So that's, you know, as the technology evolves, and it, you really start to, can, yeah, can we finally get rid of IVR systems because of voice biometrics? Obviously, that's more of a pointing to different teams, but anything well, that makes it better for the customer would be... IVR before, it's yeah, that, sorry. Annoying, uh, that annoying... Press voice, one, two. That, that robotic voice, press one to give up your soul. Press Ooh. two to go down an endless pit. Press three to be killed by a dragon. Yes. I, I, did, uh, I did lose myself in a, in a BT loop in an IVR system uh, recently, actually, when the BT problem was happening. I, I lost a good 15 minutes of my life just trying to figure out how to talk to a person, which is always quite difficult. But There was one, uh, I think it's MBNA, if you scream at the IVR, I want to speak to a person, it gives in and lets you speak to a person. Yeah. I, I found that from Rage Quitting once. <laughs> This is uh, somebody who's been playing too many computer games. There's a, there's a site, isn't there, dedicated to telling you the quickest way through an IVR system. So it says if you press hash hash one, you will get through to an operator. So there's ways of hacking these things. So that the, there's something very powerful, very powerful about the voice if you biometric. That URL that would be something <laughs> we can put out with a tweet. For this. <laughs> Yeah, I think we'll, we'll add that into the show notes for everybody. Yeah, sort of kicking be out. sure to check out the show notes, people, if you haven't already. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's an interesting trend, isn't it? You know, we're seeing almost the convergence of a lot of these technologies with regards to things like artificial intelligence and natural language processing and, you know, the mechanics of using this for, you know, multiple things, whether it be customer experience or fraud or, you know, whatever benefit of it, actually the bank's kind of aligned to doing it. But, you know, it kind of feels like the both in terms of the, the voice and actually the, the visual photo side of things, it feels like there's, you know, huge benefits there of doing it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we saw that ING in the Netherlands, I think it was back in October of 2014, they released a sort of, I like to call it the Siri of their mobile banking app called Inga. And initially it kind of only came out in Dutch and when we first used it, sort of 
we're kind of finding a bit difficult to perfect our Dutch accent, but we got there and it's quite cool. Like initially they rolled out the functionality in different phases. So at first customers could ask Inga to tell them their balance and set up payment requests. And eventually customers could sort of read their IBAN instead of typing it in to set up new payments, which I think is sort of a great feature because IBANs are probably the most annoying thing to type into um, a mobile banking app. So I think sort of using the voice in terms of navigating, I don't think that every customer is going to use it, but it's kind of like Siri, the smart population that does use it, like absolutely loves it. And from an accessibility point of view, it's sort of a good solution as well. I think it's that interaction. It's still a little bit awkward talking to your phone, but the Alexa experience of having something in your home, it feels very awkward, but then people are starting. It it does become sci-fi. It it does become normal, but I think there's also this, this user experience gap where you have to know the commands. Like Google now is already like a pretty awesome thing. But actually, there's, there are websites that have all of the commands for it because if you forget the command and you don't say the command perfectly, then you won't use it. But actually, I think the gap here is twofold. One, the tech will get better and fuzzy matching. And two, there's a whole generational thing. So there's a wonderful video I saw on YouTube of a three-year-old girl speaking to a garden sprinkler, calling it Alexa. Alexa, but why aren't you doing things anymore? Like, Alexa, what's wrong with you? So there's a generational there where actually it's going to be perfectly normal to speak to your technology. That's what you grow up with been speaking to myself for, for decades quite frankly and uh, people have been saying there's something wrong with me but uh, I'm glad it's slowly becoming accepted. Thanks very much for that MJ. I think what we'll do now is pass over to the chat that we had with the guys from the Accelerator. So how are fintech startups succeeding and failing? Okay so getting into the discussion that we're going to have today then. So Accelerators and, and how fintech startups succeed and fail. Obviously, the you know the guests that we've sort of brought in for this are uh, pretty apt on, on explaining to us uh, you know where you've seen uh, people do it well and, and otherwise, shall we say, in terms of doing it. But you know, I guess maybe we should probably start with a bit of a of an introduction with uh, where you guys are coming from, and, and actually, I, I guess that pretty much explains why uh, why you're relevant to this topic. So, should we start with you, Jess? Sure. So I'm, yeah, Jess Williamson. I'm Global Program Director at Techstars for our fintech programs, partnered with Barclays. So I've worked with our accelerator programs, London, a bit in New York, a bit in Tel Aviv, and Africa as well. Financial services across the board. Lovely. Gareth? Uh, I'm Gareth Jeffries. I'm on the investment team here in London for North Zone. Uh, we're a pan-European, mostly A round and B round technology investor. Uh, we probably do, I mean, we do a bunch of different sectors. FinTech is one of our main focuses here in London. I guess in the FinTech space, market invoice is probably our main UK one. Outside of that, Klarna and Izettle up in up in the Nordics. Um, Crossland in Berlin, Alcapay, Capital over in the States, where it was initially Swedish. So we've done kind of a lot of the different areas of the FinTech spectrum on B2B and B2C as well. So. Okay, great. Well, and, you know, getting into it, really, what does a, a great fintech startup look like to you guys? You know, this is kind of a, uh, you know, describe your ideal boyfriend slash girlfriend moment in terms of doing it. But, you know, what does a great fintech look like? Yeah, I was going to say, I went, you know, this tall, brown hair. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's no magic recipe from a cookbook. But, but overall, I'd say, you know, a strong team with founders that have some industry expertise in what they're doing that can understand the pains of their users and what they're actually trying to solve and that are going after a big market with with room to grow and room to adjust. And, you know, if I could throw one more wish in there, it would be traction, which is not always something you can have from the early days, but anyone can spot a good startup once traction is kind of obvious. Yeah. 
And I think what's interesting there is it kind of looks like the same as a great startup outside of the fintech space, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the kind of things that you go for is, you know, world-class team taking on a massive market, great scalable product, you know, differentiated product that customers love. And I think fundamentally with, with attractive unit economics as well, which I think is quite often mm. sadly overlooked both in fintech and outside of that. I guess the other thing that is slightly more specific to fintech is a product that has that ability to kind of go mainstream and actually break out of the kind of 500k or so early adopters that there are in the UK and, you know, across Europe. And I think that's actually kind of true on the B2B side as well when you consider the sort of experimental budgets that a lot of banks have. And they'll try this stuff out and people are like, oh, it's great, we've got a a paid proof of concept and that's really, really good as a foot in the door. But then converting that into being a kind of mission-critical thing I think is... It's really, really tough. So I guess it goes to the kind of traction point of it's, it's really, really tough to get there. But, but if you can, then you're onto something really, really big. Okay. So I, I guess that's, uh, that's what sort of a uh, you know, good slash bad girlfriend looks like. So what, what are the kind of mistakes you're seeing people coming into the market with? And by all means, don't name anybody specifically in this one. But um, yeah, what are the common mistakes you're actually seeing with uh, fintechs coming into this space? And I get a lot of emails from acquaintances and random folks that find my email saying, Here's my plan attached. Did we get it right? Are we going to be successful? Should I leave my job and do this? And I think the biggest mistake you can make is putting your success into somebody else's judgment or somebody else's hands. And I also think people that are asking this question, you know, for you to make this judgment based on their PowerPoints, like really have not understood the value of of team. And thankfully, you know, while Shark Tank may not have done this justice, I think Silicon Valley, a TV show, anybody that's watched a few episodes... (laughs) can see the importance of team, even just from pop culture, things like that. So, yeah, putting too much emphasis just on this immaculate plan with no concept of execution drives me insane. Fred Wilson actually did a really interesting post on that a couple of weeks ago that was like, it doesn't matter if I think it's good. It matters if you think it's good because it's you that's going to be spending like 100 hours a week or whatever making Mm -hmm. this thing become really big. You know, I can say whatever I want and it it might be useful, it might not be, but... You definitely shouldn't place any kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like if, if you don't believe it, why should I believe in you? Yeah. You, the drive should come from you, 100%. Yeah. It seems, it, it does seem there's a, you know, a bit of a focus sometimes too much on like the idea. You know, I've kind of definitely seen this kind of predisposition for a, you know, a perfect pitch and a, mm. an incredibly polished CEO to give a presentation without really getting a, you know, a truly sort of rounded company type thing. You know, how much have you guys kind of seen, you know, seen that type of mentality, you know, and Silicon Valley kind of and beaters and these kind of shows kind of plays to that, doesn't it? It's kind of a, if I can drop the, you know, the, the 30 second pitch to Richard Branson, then my, you know, my, my entire life will just be like different type thing, you know? So, and I, and I think maybe the, you know, the mic drop moment in fintech probably doesn't really exist in that sense, does it? No, I mean, I don't think, I mean, you know, we, we usually see kind of A rounds and B rounds, so thankfully there's not so much of that, let me tell you about my idea sort of thing. And I think if anybody was sort of amazing enough to get <laughs> like a sort of reasonably sized Series A round on the back of an idea, then, you know, they're probably Peter Thiel or something. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, I mean, we, we don't really see, we don't really see too much of that. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm just, if the ecosystem is actually moving along and actually gets that the idea is not, is not the core value here, or if I'm just skewed because I spend my time with people that get it. Mm. And I'm mostly just spending time with startups who have passed that threshold of understanding. 
Yeah, I think in order to have succeeded and got to the point where you're around a Jess and a Gareth, you probably have needed to have figured out that the idea isn't what makes you special, it's your execution capability. But I, I see this really sweet thing in the corporate space where, I, you know, because I'm, I'm a Twitter presence and so does David, you do get people coming to me like really protective of their idea, like their idea is this the most amazing thing and you just know they can't execute it, but they're so protective of this, this baby lamb idea they have and it's like, come on, everybody's had that idea, but can you execute Execute it. That's the. I mean, I find that especially, especially bizarre, right? <laughs> it's like, if I was capable of running an amazing business off the back of some sneaky idea that I've like peered over someone's laptop in a coffee shop or whatever, then you know, I probably that's not what I. That's not what our job is, right? Yeah. We're investors, we're money managers, whatever it might be. We're definitely not idea stealers, <laughs> right? And, I, and so I do find it really, really strange that people say, "Oh, you know, I'll just get you signed up to this NDA and, and this and that," and it's like that's. You know, not, it's just kind of a waste of everybody's time. It does save you time, though, because then you realize those aren't people you're going to move forward with. <laughs> Which is so different from the culture in corporate where, you know, like if you put something on a whiteboard in a corporate, you, you've created IP. And if the IP lawyer isn't there to capture that IP, then woe betide you, you're in trouble. And so I think that's where a lot of this kind of comes from is this, this corporate world where, you know, like you do something that's even slightly crushing a threshold of IP and they're just like ready to kill you. There's been, a, I guess, a, an interesting trend lately. You know, we've seen, and, and actually we've seen this from the regulator as well with all the kind of startup organizations kind of coming in is like a real push for kind of deeper FS experience. You know, not just having the, the, the mum or dad from, from who used to work at a bank in the room, but, you know, real sort of detailed kind of FS experience. How much do you guys kind of look for that? And in, in, I guess the, you know, the, the recipe of what's sort of making a, a good startup? I think it's, I guess if you're talking about like FS skills versus sort of startup skills, for want of a better term. Yeah. It definitely helps to have both. I think if I had to pick one, I would pick what I would term startup skills. And um, by that, I mean, well, I, th- I think that they're just a little bit rarer in the sense of, you know, having that entrepreneur who has that kind of incredible, unbelievable drive to make this thing become absolutely massive and to really stop at nothing sort of thing is a lot rarer than someone who understands how to sell to banks or they understand how to get around the FCA and that sort of stuff. I mean, you definitely need those guys, but I don't necessarily think they need to be part of the founding team. I think that that's the sort of stuff that you can you can get that kind of expertise through bringing advisors on board or early hires and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you know, it's obviously a case-by-case thing and there's caveats for each of those, but I think that it's more important if you're trying to build a really massive business to have a world-class founder at the helm, even if they haven't necessarily come from some deep financial services background. Yeah, I think fundamentally it's about having the belief that that company has what it takes to be successful. For some businesses, that industry expertise is more important than for others. So if somebody came to us, that's happened a couple years ago, and so they had a platform aimed at OTC derivatives traders, and they had worked specifically in this field for 10 years, you're going to feel a lot more comfortable than someone that says, well, I've been working in a you know publishing tech company, but I really think I've got something for these OTC derivatives traders that are wasting their time in banks, signing their agreements like this, this, and this. So you just have to look at it holistically and see what... Mm. What are they going to need to be successful? And do you feel like they're overlooking the dynamics of the industry? Do they have the relationships in place? Do they understand the politics? Do they understand who they're going to sell into? Do they understand what those people are motivated by and how to sell into them? You know, whether that comes down to having that industry background or not, I think definitely varies. Mm. 
right. I, I imagine we're definitely seeing more people that have left, you know, jobs behind in banking that do have that expertise because they're no longer afraid to leave their finance jobs compared to three, four, five years ago. So I think there are more people in the market that carry more expertise than might have been the case before. Well, we're, we're currently sitting in a room with somebody who left HSBC, somebody <laughs> and somebody who left Lloyd's type thing. So <laughs> we, we can absolutely attest to the, uh, you know, the, the grass being greener on the other side as well, which is... Which oh, is heck yeah. But, um, so, uh, you know, I guess... What, you know, given I think we we had a good chat about Brexit a few weeks ago, and you know, sort of cried on each other's shoulders for for a while in terms of this one. But you know, what is the climate, and how are we sort of seeing that sort of changing? I, I know, obviously, in the the news, we saw a, an obscene amount of money being spent in uh, in June in terms of doing it. So you know, clearly, funding hasn't dried up. But with regards to, I guess, the you know, the climate for A round and B round, are we seeing any sort of material changes in things that either people are investing in or? you know, generally the amount of money? I've kind of seen, uh, I mean, maybe it's because summer's a little bit of a quiet time or whatever, I don't know, but I've been surprised at how little it's affected our kind of day-to-day activity, I think. I mean, you know, on the one hand, UK deals just got 10% cheaper because our funds denominated in euros. <laughs> you know, and I guess that's probably going to be the case for a lot of funds. So, so on... Summer discount, you know? It's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a discount or maybe a permanent one, depending on, uh, on how it goes after that. But... So I was a little bit surprised about that. I mean, to be honest, I think it's still so up in the air what is actually going to happen. I mean, yes, you know, they've had this advisory referendum and that's the result. And, you know, there's this whole, is it, if it's going to happen, if it, even if it's going to happen, which we don't know is certain yet. So, so hang on, we're calling it the advisory referendum now, that's, are we? That's what it is. Like, it's not <laughs> legally binding, is it? It's not legally binding, yeah. Right, okay. So there's this wiggle room for, for, for that then. Well, that's what everyone's hoping anyway. Everyone thinks, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I speak to a lot of people that were pro-Remain and stuff, but, you know, I, there's conspiracy theories about May having a master plan where maybe I should say this on the, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Don't no worry, she can hear you anyway. <laughs> but no, but I mean, even so, like what form that ends up taking is still so TBC, right? Yeah. So if it ends up being the case that there isn't free movement of labour and that it becomes that much harder to hire tech talent and things like that, then I think once that becomes more concrete, then you'll probably start seeing material problems. But I think in the meantime, where it's like, listen, the fundamentals haven't changed. There's still really great businesses being built here. Yes, there's going to be headwinds if it ends up fully happening or whatever form it might take. But I don't see that means that funding needs to, to stop right now. Well, it, and it doesn't seem to have sort of materially affected it yet, does it, as you say? And, you know, as much as I've got a bank packed by the door just in case I need to move to Berlin type thing, then it doesn't feel like I'll be needing it sort of anytime soon, really. So, you know, the, the London scene particularly seems to be as, as kind of hot as ever, really, in terms of fintech, right? Yeah, it seemed like Frankfurt was sitting there just going, Whoa, we're ready for all of your people now, you know, the day after the vote. And I was definitely nervous. I agree. I mean, it's still, still early days. There's still some uncertainty. But overall, you know, our companies have still been in very strong position. I was worried our round's going to fall apart. And that definitely hasn't been the case for, for any of our companies. I can't speak on behalf of the entire wider ecosystem, but... The Seems. numbers of, of funding being closed still still seem to be 
up there. And it's interesting that everybody was worried about tech and fintech after Brexit, like like that was going to be impacted. But actually, if anything's not going to be impacted, it's that industry, because really fintech and tech in the UK was gr- born out of the last financial crisis. It kind of came out of you know a lot of people coming out of banks, a lot of technology software solutions being available that weren't really available before. You had all of these platforms and you know, building a company was cheaper than ever. So you had all of these things kind of converging. And then you had a lot of fintech expertise just kind of suddenly available and needing to do something else with its time so i don't think that industry is as affected as it should be what it does become more difficult to do is hire certain talent from europe and you know there are these operational issues that start to come with it but actually you know if you're in kind of uh, other industries like services or if you're a big bank i think it's a lot more painful than if you're a startup there's definitely uncertainty floating around on the labor side of things people are nervous you know, about whether they'll be able to stay here or whether they can take certain jobs. And I have seen people change their kind of personal life and job decisions, which is unfortunate. You know, I hope the whole thing blows over and doesn't wind up impacting us so much down the line. But I think that's the thing. At the moment, we just don't know, do we? And I think that, you know, the the uncertainty around investment is always the killer of it, isn't in, in terms of sort of doing it. So you know, the quicker we know what it's going to be, whether it's a bad thing or, you know, if it's going to be terrible, if it's going to be good, then uh, we just sort of need to know and then we can kind of move forward, can't we? So, uh, but I I guess, you know, on the basis, we're not all sort of disappearing to Berlin anytime soon then in terms of where we're going, then, you know, accelerators seem to be sort of a kind of a key element really to, to bringing fintech players through. And can we define an accelerator for the audience that might not know what an accelerator is? Because I get this, asked this question quite a lot. So there might be some in the audience that want to know what an accelerator is. So Jess, do you want to just give us your version of what is an accelerator? And then Jess, Gareth, talk about, you know, how do accelerators fit into this picture of fintech startup ecosystem? Good thing, bad thing, etc. Sure. So after I define accelerator, I'll ask you to define fintech later. So okay. I think <laughs> the words have both gotten extremely broad. But I'd say in our world... We talk about at Techstars, the accelerator, or our alumni talk about getting a year's worth of work done in three months. So for us, that looks like a mix of early stage investment, providing a rich base of mentors who are mostly entrepreneurs who've been there, done that, want to help give back, as well as, you know, the startups have each other and a really strong peer network. So it's really about creating a supercharged ecosystem and really strong network with unfair advantages as we love to say, that will help the startups get more done quickly, avoid mistakes, save time, and get ahead of the game. So I can't speak on behalf of all accelerators out there, but one of the differences, for example, that's really key between an accelerator and an incubator is that we actually invest. There's an investment component, and we wind up with 6% equity in each of those companies. So it's in our best interest to do whatever the hell we can for those companies for the rest of their journey. Three months of the set period that we plan out, but forever and ever beyond that. So it's almost like a a three-month finishing school for a startup to really get their stuff together and then followed by just like a lifetime of support. Would that be? Yeah, three months of crazy speeding up, getting crazy access, getting their connections, getting a supercharged network to help them shape their product and get the product feedback, to help them shape their go-to-market, to help get doors opened, get customers, get partnerships, get deals signed, and put them in a stronger position for raising that investment if, if raising investment is important to them. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that, that taking equity part in terms of doing it, I think is important because I think from, from my perspective, uh, not just from your side of things, but actually it must 
really define how you select the companies that you want to bring in. You know, you're much more rigorous than, you know, I've seen a lot of um, bank looking at the guys who used to work at banks, looking at uh, bank PR exercises around kind of labs and innovation, sort of almost bringing anything in because it's kind of shiny type thing. Whereas actually the idea that you're really sort of committing to this from a, an investment perspective, you know, that seems like a differentiator in terms of the, a, the level of commitment that you guys kind of do in terms of doing it, but your motivation behind really making it work for those guys as well. Sure. And you've probably heard, I mean, at Techstars, we've got an equity back guarantee. So this is just a way of saying we feel so strongly and confident in our ability to add value here. And the alumni will tell us the same thing that, you know, if anybody feels like we've let them down or disappointed them, they can actually take as much or as little of that 6% equity back. So that, I think, is one thing that I wish other accelerators adopted as well, but I think just shows the strength of what we're prepared to offer and making sure that everything is founder first and founder friendly because there's a lot of efforts out there from different corporates and it's often hard to figure out what people are getting into. And I think the more, the more programs that are comfortable offering an equity back guarantee, the better the ecosystem will be for the startup community at large. Has anyone ever done that? So, I mean, across hundreds of alumni now, at this point, there have been a few cases. Typically, it's where we have an expectation mismatch and where we've maybe not aligned expectations probably at the beginning. So, you know, once in a while, there is not quite the right fit, and that's fine. I'd rather everybody's happy at the end, but it's extremely, extremely uncommon. Yeah. None of them just being extremely selfish. Yeah. What do you mean yeah. they're not a unicorn after three years? <laughs> Damn you. Yeah, I've been, again, somebody who's been watching far too much Silicon Valley, then uh, my, my expectations are well and truly out of whack. But, yeah, uh, you're expecting an Ehrlich Bachman type character somewhere. Uh, uh, Do you want a uh, hundred of him mentoring you? Is that yeah. your dream? <laughs> I'm not sure if that would be a great thing or a terrible thing. Not, like, I, can't, I can't tell. In like a comedy environment, like just viewing it, amazing. But, yeah. uh, but like as a boss, terrible. Oh, there's a TV show that is essential viewing. Exactly, so... And, and, I, and I guess, you know, at the moment, you guys must have, you know, very diverse companies coming to you. You know, you've got, uh, you know, we, we've seen, you know, anything ranging from a kind of a very small app to a, you know, huge potential in terms of transforming what asset management does. You know, how are you guys kind of scaling out the different types of opportunities that are sort of coming to you? So it is super broad within financial services. And it is, as you said, anything from core banking infrastructure to consumer services to tech that a bank would use in some way. So it is fairly broad. I won't hold you to defining fintech, mm -hmm. Simon. But I think it's funny because initially when people saw the program launch, there was a lot of conception. Oh, you're looking for 10 payment apps, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, dear Lord. Whereas <laughs> if you look at our portfolio more broadly, you'll see everything from digitized land registration in Ghana through to looking at mortgages, yeah, investment banking algorithms, wealth management, payments, insurance fraud, e-commerce fraud. It's super broad, and, and that's why I love it, because it is such a diverse area to play in. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Gareth, are you, are you seeing, I guess, you know, in that diversity of, of startups that are kind of coming through, are you seeing a, a, a kind of a, a broad range of investment opportunities, or are you seeing like a a dearth of, you know, peer-to-peer -peer payments players coming through at one point or... Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a few of those kind of subsectors that have more, a greater volume of businesses because the barriers to selling them are low or they're that much harder to, or even they're that much easier to kind of scale towards becoming sort of Series A type of ready. 
but I mean, no, that we still see a huge, huge variety. I mean, it's it's it still surprises me a little bit that we even talk about fintech as being this this kind of sector on its own because even the tiny subsegments are enormous. I mean, I see this, I see insurance as being a subsegment of fintech. And even within that, you've got B2C, you've got B2B, you've got B2B2C, you've got peer-to-peer, you've got all this other different stuff. And, and then you've got the guys who, you know, who, who, who sell services to the insurance providers and all that sort of stuff as well. So it's, it, it really surprises me that it's even regarded as this one segment in its own. But we get a lot of, uh, of, the, uh, of the different sub-segments coming through. Um, and I think that that's a really good thing because I think there's still opportunities in, in most of them, frankly. Yeah. Do you, do you look to sort of balance out your portfolio from an investment perspective then in terms of, you know, the uh, traditional way from a layman's perspective in terms of my investments, it's like spreading the risk in terms of where you're going. So, you know, would you go like big on AI in terms of particular areas or would you sort of go in a uh, kind of a few companies in that space and actually sort of move it into other territories or? Um, we don't, we, we, we actively try not to invest in competitive businesses to our own ones. Uh, but I think that's about as far as it goes. Really. I mean, we don't sort of think, oh, we're really underweight in payments and therefore we should do some payments. I think we more look at it on a case by case thing of saying, okay, how will this particular business, you know, what kind of impact is it going to have on our fund? What do we rate at the team? All that different stuff. Rather than it being more of a, yeah, we, should probably diversify out of this thing. I mean, if we're particularly, I mean, we're relatively bullish on peer-to-peer, for example. So we've done Market Invoice and we've done Crossland and um, had a couple of others. So, you know, that's not us being, yeah, we're going to pile everything into this, but we just happen to have liked the sector and have liked a couple of businesses that we've seen in that. So I don't think that you sort of spread your bets for the sake of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, one of the things we get asked a lot and, you know, to your, to your point, Simon, earlier on, we, uh, we get many an email with, uh, you know, the uh, the answer to uh, to sort of um, world hunger, don't we? Sort of uh, somehow construed into a fintech startup type thing. But what would be the, you know, the the pieces of advice that you give fintech entrepreneurs in terms of people coming through? You know, what's the what's the golden nugget that you'd give them to say, uh, you know, really sort of focus on this thing? Ooh, I think I would tell people to make friends, make a lot of friends. There's a lot of people within banks who are not going to leave what they're doing, but who see the startup life as this rock and roll therapy they want to be involved in on the side. And so for startups out there figuring out how to make the right friends that genuinely want to help, genuinely, genuinely want to help, and then pull those people along in your journey, learn from other people's mistakes, like let people open doors for you, use them as your therapists when needed. But there's, there's no reason not to make a lot of friends and, and make them before you need them. Don't, don't go when you're desperate. Go when you don't need anything. Build those relationships, and then they'll be valuable for you later on. I think that's good advice even if you're not in FinTech. Which one would give me that advice, eh? <laughs> I, think, I mean, I think that's, that's definitely, you know, you should never underestimate the value of, of a good network, and, and I think there's a big part of kind of paying it forward that, that helps a lot, especially in this industry. I think kind of commercially... And this goes for fintech and not fintech. I think it's really, it's still really, really important to get your unit permits right and to make sure that you've got a bit of wiggle room in there. I mean, we've seen, I guess, outside of fintech, you've seen a couple of businesses recently that have kind of gone under because they are basically losing money on every order. And that is a problem. And I think what the one mistake that I think of quite a lot of fintech entrepreneurs make is assuming that their unit you know, is going to get better with scale. And actually, I think quite often it's the case that it goes the other way. 
because you start off with early adopters who are kind of keen and they're looking around for different kind of solutions and, and all that sort of stuff. But actually, when you are trying to break into that mainstream, it becomes a, a lot harder to, to do that. So the classic here was power technologies who you know kind of got to a certain size. They had more and more funding. They had a great hype cycle around them. I think they timed it perfectly to be like the potential fintech unicorn. They were worth a billion dollars, and actually it was all built on sand and built on lies and that sort of thing. And so there's there are you know these companies that will get so far. Um, do we think that you know fintech itself is built on froth, or are the fundamental businesses here are the good businesses? I guess there's got to be some, right? But it's how are we spotting those? How are we? Are we finding those out? I wouldn't say fintech was built on froth. I think mm. that's a very, um, a very sort of bearish view on, yeah, the, yeah. on the whole kind of thing. I mean, I definitely think there has been a lot of a lot of froth in the past. I think it was probably not too long ago that you could just sort of be like, "Hey, I am in fintech," and you would command a mm. X million pre money or whatever. I don't necessarily know if that happens so much, you know, in Europe, for example. But well, maybe it's because I've been watching too much Silicon Valley. Or I think <laughs> that's kind of the case in the states, but. <laughs> It is hard to kind of, uh, you know, separate reality and fiction in that sense, isn't it, to a certain degree? You know, I basically do explain to my wife what I do on a day-to-day basis based on watching Silicon Valley these days. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite, uh, quite entertaining for her. But uh, although there are some risque moments in that one that I had to explain to her with nothing to do with what we do. So for anybody who has watched the show and got to the tip-to-tip piece, mm. not what we do. Yeah, yeah. So just definitely not. There's no so, metal lamp compression. Exactly. <laughs> No, I think there's so much room for substance and not froth here. When you look at the IT budget of a major bank, it's crazy. It's trillions spent on IT. And so, and marketing budgets, I won't even go there right now. So when you look at opportunities where startups can add efficiencies or play a role or sell into banks and serve a part of this infrastructure, the cost savings possible are huge. The impact is huge. And I think people don't realize how much money is actually being spent on these things. And so it might appear as froth because, oh, wow, why do they need that much funding? But when you look at how big the market they're going after is, there's a lot more zeros at the end of these numbers than in many other industries. And they're before the decimal point. That's so true. <laughs> I think my thesis as well is that a lot of banking is beneath the waterline. You know, the iceberg is a lot bigger than the waterline sort of stuff. Like there's the banking you see, which is the consumer bit, and that's what we think a bank is. But actually that whole capital market side, but then the corporate side and the card side, and there's like all of these, other, and then there's insurance, and then there's asset managers, and there's like this whole ecosystem of different companies out there that do amazing things. And we've kind of seen the disruption really in the consumer space, or we've seen some disruption at the beginning of it. Um, you know, we always say that digital banking is 1% done, but it's not even got started in some other parts of the organizations, I think. Mm. I agree. I, I think uh, there's a long way to go on this one. There's uh, a lot more good ideas out there, and there's probably a lot more money to be invested, isn't there? So, uh, A lot more problems to solve. Exactly, yeah. So if you're a listener and you've got a problem to solve, then uh, whatever you do, don't send Jess a deck asking if the, the idea is right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I was going to ask, where can these guys find you? So that, that might be an interesting place to, to end. So, um, you know, Jess, Gareth, where can, uh, where can the listeners find you? Uh, I mean, I, and to be honest, most, I guess, of the investors that, that I know make every effort to reply, even to cold emails. I know there's a lot of stuff that you'll read on the internet saying, oh, no, network your way in, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that kind of is preferable if you happen to be doing that. And, you know, to Jess's point around, make friends. That's definitely, definitely helps when you do need to, to come and see investment but I mean you know we do our absolute best to um, you know to, to make sure that, that, that we're you know available throughout you know throughout the life cycle right so um, 
happy to, to reply to emails. I mean, apart from that, catch us at any of the demo days, uh, any of the kind of Finnovate or the Innovate Finance Global Summits and that sort of stuff. I mean, there will most always be, be one of us there and, you know, turn up, say hello. We're a friendly face, right? <laughs> and Jess, where can I learn more about Techstars? Yeah, sure. If you're not stalking me at an airport or a train station, then... Um, we've... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we'll move on. So on the London side, we actually have applications open now for London until October 15th, barclaysaccelerator.com or techstars.com. And I'll just tell you, I'm just at techstars.com. So feel free to email and I'll, I'll pass it to the right place. Fantastic. Well, on, on that note, thank you very much for joining you guys and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that's it. We've come to the end of episode 105. I want to thank our guests, Jess Williamson from Techstars, Gareth Jeffries from Northzone, and also thank you very much to Aidan Davies for joining us. Coming up next week, we have friend of the show, Anna Herrera, back from the Wall Street Journal. We also have Bill Sullivan, and Bill is the Global Head of Financial Services for Capgemini. So that's it. That's all we have for this week. Thanks again for listening. See you next episode. Mm-hmm.